What are the top insider fraud threats to financial services organizations? Hi, this is Tom Field, Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I'm discussing this topic today with Randy Trezak. He's the technical lead with the Insider Threat Research Team at the Insider Threat Center at Carnegie Mellon University's CERT. Randy's just headed up a new research project into this topic. Randy, thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Randy, to start out with, tell us a little bit about the genesis of this new financial services study, please. What was your mission, and how did you go about accomplishing this project? Sure. This, uh, this, the reports that we recently released uh, was a year-long study uh, that was funded by the Department of Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate. And what they wanted us to do was to work with the United States Secret Service, uh, to allow us to analyze cases that they've investigated to see if there are any patterns of behavior. Really what we were trying to do was to look for uh, if there are any types of indicators that would uh, give some highlights to organizations to help them to develop some insights or some of the risk indicators. Really the goal is to help private industry, government, law enforcement, really to look at insider incidents to help from a prevention standpoint, a detection standpoint, and a response standpoint. So we did get a great deal of support from the Secret Service. They provided us data on 80 incidents they have investigated. Those particular crimes that they investigated occurred from the years of 2005 through the present. And really it was looking at fraud in a financial services sector. Now the majority of the cases did include banks and financial institution industries, but also did include other types of, uh, of organizations that had a financing department such as automobile dealerships or builders, uh, employee benefit providers, staffing, engineering, home improvement, transportation. So we really try to look at uh, are there patterns of behavior, both in terms of technical patterns that organizations could observe, but also some of the non-technical patterns uh, that, are, that may be apparent from an organization standpoint, really to look for those particular ways to identify the insights and indicators to help uh, people trying to address insider threats in their organizations. Well, really, then, these findings can be relevant to an organization that's not in financial services. Yeah, it, it certainly can. Any, any type of organization that has a financial component uh, it was, the, was the, most of the case that they've investigated. But when we look at fraud uh, from an insider threat perspective, the Insider Threat Center describes fraud as insiders who add or modify or delete data in a critical system. Uh, that particular motivation is someone is paid to do that or there's a personal benefit to the individual. So if you think about other types of sectors that could have some type of insider fraud committed, think about organizations that maintain data on customers or their employees. Uh, we've had a number of cases that occurred where false identity documents were generated. Someone was paid to generate a false identity document in government-type organizations. But also think about it from a standpoint if, if a particular employee could alter customer data to include things such as credit scores or some type of financial or some type of, uh, for example, a driver's license or the, the uh, criminal histories of employees. So really, I, we believe that most organizations are at least at some risk because they do maintain information about customers or employees, and those particular employees could be targeted to be paid for or to obtain some personal benefit from altering that data in those critical systems. So I've had the chance to go through the report and really found it fascinating. What would you say you emerged from it with with key findings? What stood out to you? Sure. There, so in the report, and we certainly suggest that everyone go to the report, there are six findings, and you can certainly go through those. 
Uh, they list things such as finding one, which we found interesting, which was the low and slow approach to criminals who committed these crimes. Uh, typically, we found that these crimes tended to go on for a long period of time, that there tended to be lower amounts that were committed for each fraud event, but as they go on for a longer period of time, obviously the impact of the organization financially tended to be very large. So that was interesting in terms of the low and slow approach. Now, some of the things that we were hypothesizing on why the low and slow approach was taken was, obviously organizations have fraud controls in place and they have thresholds and limits that they are looking for to identify potential suspicious transactions. One of the things that we believe, and it's outlined in one of the future findings, is that employees, to include the managers as well as the non-managers, knew about what those thresholds were and were intentionally going below the thresholds to avoid detection from these suspicious transactions. So again, finding one was interesting from a low and slow approach, but if we dig it just a bit deeper into that finding one, what we found interesting was the amount of time that people were in a position before they started committing their fraud. Uh, we have a chart in the report that gives the statistics of, on average, across these 80 cases, uh, from the time the employee was hired in the organization to the time they began their fraud, it was over five years of, 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 of a period of, of employment before they started committing their fraud. So it's a significant amount of time, almost 62 months from the time they started with the organization until the time that they started their fraud. So at least in these cases, it wasn't people coming in and starting fraud very close to their hiring uh, for the organization. So these were trusted employees in the organizations, and obviously those employees knew what some of the fraud controls were in place, and that may have facilitated the ability to carry out their crime for that such a long period of time. Now, in addition, another stat that we found interesting was the amount of time from when the fraud started until it was detected by the organization. On average, about 32 months, over two and a half years from the time the fraud started until the time that, we, that it was detected. Now, if we want to be positive and, and look at the glass half full, obviously that's a lot of opportunities for detection. But this low and slow approach that it did go on for a significant amount of time before it was detected by the organization. And then finally, one other key point related to finding one was, so when the organization did detect it, uh, if we take a look at the time from detection of the fraud to the time that law enforcement was notified, we found that it was almost five months from the time that it was detected until the time that law enforcement was called in. So those were three interesting stats that we pulled out of finding one, this low and slow approach. Now, other findings we could go into more detail as well. Finding two well, was that the crime typically was not very technical. Uh, these people had authorized access to the systems and to the data in the systems, and they used the authorized access to commit the crime. They did not need to escalate privileges, or they didn't need to use a very technical means to carry out their crime. So it tended to be not very technical in terms of how they committed their crime. So those were two, two key findings. I, I certainly don't want to minimize the other of the six that we outlined in the reports, but those were things that were interesting that we found in terms of, of, of interesting in, information that we pulled out of these 80 cases. Now, Randy, I know you've investigated scores of cases over a number of years. What do you find to be unique about insider fraud in financial services? Uh, that, that's an interesting question. So we've been doing research into insider threats for going on 12 years now. We've collected over 800 incidents, 
and we've broken those down into patterns of behavior. One of the patterns is fraud. Typically, those folks are motivated by financial gain or some personal benefit. Those people are typically have authorized access to critical systems, and they add or modify or delete data in the systems. Uh, so those typically is the pattern, which is pretty consistent. Now, what we found different about these particular cases, before we started this study, we described people who committed fraud by insiders as typically lower-level employees, non-manager employees, and they are paid to mod modify or delete or affect data in critical systems. Now, what we did find interesting about these cases was the significant number of managers that were involved in these crimes, people in positions of trust, such as the vice presidents or bank officers or supervisors. Over 50% of the cases, these recent cases, we found that managers were involved in the commission of the crime. Now, that was different from the other fraud cases that we investigated, which did include cases outside of the banking and finance sector. So that was one of the interesting findings in terms of managers being involved in these fraud cases in the financial services sector cases. Right, that's something I wanted to ask you about because I noticed in the report that you differentiate between managers who commit fraud and non-managers. What can you tell us about some of the common characteristics of managers, for instance? Sure, that, that, that's a great question in terms of differences between managers and non-managers. What we found interesting was uh, if we focus strictly on the impact, uh, managers tend to cause more damage, almost twice as much damage in terms of the financial impact to the organization. Uh, we do quote in the report the amount of damage on average, about $200,000 of fraud incident committed by a manager, slightly over $100,000 by the non-managers. So the impact, obviously, is is greater from a manager perspective. Also, the duration. We talked about the low and slow approach. The managers, on average, tended to carry out their fraud for over 33 months, whereas the non-managers, about 18 months. So again, about double the amount of time managers were able to carry out their fraud. Now, a couple of other interesting points that differentiate the people who commit fraud who are managers and non-managers. Uh, the managers tended to, uh, to have subordinates contribute, and many times unknowingly, to the fraud activity, now that they basically had people be involved in the fraud without them knowing it. Uh, one case example that we had, we had a vice president at a particular bank. Basically what he was doing was committing fraud, and the way he was able to get away with that was to change the address of one of the accounts for one of the particular customers. And what he was able to convince one of the subordinates to do was to give him the statements that were to be delivered via U.S. mail he convinced them to hand-deliver them or that he was going to hand-deliver those. So he convinced the subordinates to actually, with the changed address, give him the statements, and he promised to deliver those in the, in the sake of giving better customer service, more personalized attention to customers. So, again, not that subordinates were always knowingly involved, but many times the particular managers unwittingly or unknowingly included other folks into that particular fraud activity. Uh, managers and non-managers typically both were motivated by some type of financial gain. And similarities between the two was that many of the times it was to try to resolve some type of financial or, per or personal problem. So there was some type of financial stressor that was impacting these individuals. Now, what was interesting between these particular cases of managers and non-managers, uh, both tended to, once the financial situation was, was resolved from a 
from a perception standpoint, they tended to continue the activity. So just because they used the motivation of, I'm going to solve a financial problem, many of them did tend to continue the activity beyond the particular uh, motivation of solving that short-term financial problem. But what was interesting also was that the number of individuals, as we investigated these cases, the number of individuals that, uh, that did not have the fraud as the motivation of to buy a second house or a dream house or a luxury item, it was interesting the number of these individuals that tended to use the money just to, to solve day-to-day financial problems. We had a number of folks who were just paying bills or paying debt or loaning money to someone else who had a medical problem or some other financial situation. The vast majority of these individuals did not have a wealth of money when detected or large luxury items that they used the money for. So there's some similarities between managers and non-managers, but also some differences as well. Reddy, how do you find that organizations can do a better job detecting these types of crimes before they do cause significant damage? One of the things that we do in this report is we give seven recommendations, things that organizations can do to prevent or detect these particular crimes. Uh, one of the recommendations that we have outlined here was certainly organizations need to continue to vet employees to trust to determine trust when employees come into an organization. Many times organizations do background checks, criminal or civil background checks. They do things such as credit histories uh, that would identify things such as previous bankruptcies. Obviously, that does need to continue. But if we use the stat that says that people are employed for, on average, five years before they start the fraud, we're certainly recommending that organizations consider the reinvestigation of employees from the time they start throughout their career with an organization you might have a chance at identifying people who might have some of those financial issues or financial stressors if you do continual reinvestigations from the time people are hired until the time that they leave an organization. So that would be certainly one of the things that we would, would suggest from a recommendation standpoint. Another, another recommendation we have is considering the online activity and monitoring of online activity. Certainly that needs to continue, and many organizations do use monitoring software. One of the suggestions we might have is that organizations should consider things that would be more of the impromptu auditing of transactions, or if they're able to alter the the limits of what those thresholds are for suspicious activity. If employees know what you're looking for, they might take steps to avoid detection by those fraud controls. So if organizations have the ability to increase or decrease what they're looking for, what they consider suspicious transactions. You might have a better chance of identifying what potentially could be a suspicious transaction that should be investigated. But certainly consistent online monitoring is something that needs to be done. Uh, but if we have the ability to increase or decrease or make some of the routine audits not as routine, maybe have some sporadic or some, some uh, non-routine audits, again, if employees know what they're looking for, they might take steps to be able to avoid detection. And don't let your managers make house calls. Possibly, yeah. And that was one case where a manager did make a house call. Again, trust but verify is the consistent message that we have at CERT. Certainly trust your employees, absolutely. But verify what they're doing with data and with systems. And there needs to be a constant or a continual investigation of what could potentially be suspicious activity. Randy, where can people learn more? Where can they get a copy of the report? They can certainly go to our website to get more information about the report. If you go to www.cert.org, 
and then go to insider underscore threat. That's our insider threat main page. On that page, we have wealth of information about all of our years of research. But specifically related to this report, on the website, we have a long version or a detailed version of the report. That is the 80-page detailed version of the report. It goes into all the findings, all the stats, all the information about what the report found and information about the report. Now, in addition to that, there is a short version or an executive summary version. Shorter page, short, shorter number of pages in terms of 20 pages, but it does go through the detail of, of information. Those specific reports, the long report, the title is Insider Threat Study, Illicit Cyber Activity Involving Fraud in the U.S. Financial Services Sector. That's the 80-page report. The short page report is Insider Fraud in Financial Services. That's the executive summary, 20-page version. Randy, thanks so much for your time and your insight today. You're welcome. Thank you very much. We've been discussing insider fraud and financial services. I've been talking with Randy Trezak. He's the technical lead with the Insider Threat Research Team at Carnegie Mellon's CERT. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.